Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. How many of you love a good treasure story? Something about treasure stories, whether you've read them or watched them through life, there's all these different things that they seem to have in common. There's a treasure map. There's usually a, what marks the spot? X marks the spot. And sometimes there's volcanoes on the map and jungles with crazy animals. And somehow there seems to be, I remember some books as a kid, you had to swim through these tunnels in the ocean to get to the treasure. And sometimes the treasure's in caves. I just read a story, I think uh, a couple weeks ago now, about they think they found $500 million of Civil War gold. But then the treasure hunters, I think, said, and the FBI took it. (laughs) So treasure stories are just so adventurous. And if you have your Bible in Matthew 13, the Bible has a treasure story. It's pretty short, at least how it's described here, but longer as you get into finding the treasure. And it is in Matthew chapter 13 and verse uh, 44. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. And it describes it like this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. So you imagine the finding of treasure. You're casually walking and you find treasure. And the way this story is told, he hid the treasure. Imagine walking on some land, seeing all this treasure. You got to hide it. So he hides it. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has. So just put yourself in the shoes of this individual finding treasure. Casually strolling, and then you find it. And then you bury it. And then you leave that place. And whatever it takes to buy that field, you go to all your friends and you say, look, I need some money. I've sold everything I have. Maybe there's things you have, but I have found buried treasure. And only I know where it's at. And it is on, as the story seems to denote, it is on property that I do not own. And so I need to go buy that field because the treasure is there. I find this parable of Jesus interesting. There's a lot of nuances about it, but it describes the kingdom of heaven and the words we find. Uh, There's another element here. It talks about in the next few verses, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he'd found one pearl of great price went and sold all all that he had and bought it. That there's something about the words of Scripture that once you realize and find the treasure, it's so valuable, you'll go sell everything you have, turn from everything you know to possess it. So this morning, we're going to look at that idea of what is the value of Scripture, why is it important, and then how do you actually study the Bible itself? Here's a little bit of data before we jump in. 54% uh, 
Barna and Gallup did two polls. I'm going to interchange between the data. Happy to give you the references. 54% in the United States believe the United States is better off because of the existence of the Bible. One out of seven surveyed believe the United States would be better off without the Bible. One out of four believe the Bible should be taken literally. Nearly 41% of U.S. adults do not read the Bible ever. Then this last point, 181 million Americans read the Bible in the last 12 months. In fact, they described how in the pandemic, as it has progressed, reading of the Bible has increased. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do. If you have your phone, you can go fast. Let's go look at why should we study the Bible? Why would, if supposedly God left one book for humanity or, or all these little books combined into one volume of a book, why do we study it? So there's different reasons why we study it. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And we're going to go to 2 Peter as well. Uh, there's these different reasons that we study the scriptures, and the reason being is we're told things that the scriptures say about the scriptures. And I'll say it now, and then we'll say it again in a minute. There's a growing sentiment that God is greater than scripture. That this is one thing, but God is a different thing. And I think that's very dangerous. And the reason being is because we read in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, here's some heresy, right? The Word was God. So I think the safe path is to say, if it's in this book, God took credit for it. It says, it, this is me. This is what I want you to know. Not, you can have a mystical experience and arrive higher than these uneducated folks through history. I really think it's safe to say God takes credit for this. And if we follow this, it seems to denote you end in a safe place. Okay? So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 15, and then we're going to, the core is 16, but 15 leads it up. It says, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise. So the, the scriptures, what do they do? Make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's something that this book is saying about the whole book. Verse 16, all scripture, the entire book, not just some parts we like, some parts we call poetry, some call, parts we call psalms, some parts we call prophecy, but all of it, is given by inspiration of God, and we could say all of it is profitable for a few reasons, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Has anyone ever heard that verse before? What are your reactions to it? I'd love to get a comment on that verse. 
Maybe the first time you heard it, what did you think? Maybe you didn't understand or believe in the Bible before. Did that verse come into your life and what did it do? One person. Yeah. Okay, you can't cherry pick scripture. And it is so tempting to cherry pick scripture. To make it say whatever you want. And to someone who wants to, I think you pretty much can make scripture say whatever you want. You can twist it. You can say, well, that's, that's not what they meant. Or, or I think a smooth, clever way is, let's go to a different language and then we reinterpret everything and we think, well, God must have just totally checked out when it was being translated into English because he didn't know what he was doing. So if, if I have to speak Hebrew or Greek to understand this book, that just seems strangely familiar like through the dark ages. Let the experts tell you what is true. Let the, we call them the fact checkers. Let them tell you what's true. You don't know. How could you know? You're, you're not educated in these unbelievably wonderful languages. So I think it's very dangerous if we go down and we start cherry-picking Scripture. 2 Peter. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. So, so we're going to look at a few verses here that give us some important things to consider before we go into, well, then how do you study the Bible? Most of the world studies the Bible like this. They don't. And then those who say, yes, I studied the Bible, it's, and this is coming into the Adventist church, you should hear my preacher. What do you believe in this? Well, my pastor has a sermon on that topic. He wrote a book on that topic. Again, outsourcing truth to the supposed experts is dangerous. So 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's the principle we learn there. Someone comes to you. And I'm on uh, some people's newsletter lists. <laughs> Maybe you are too. Lori, I'm sure you get some of these emails. I have uncovered truth. It is my personal pleasure to tell it to you today. No one else is saying this, but I have it. In fact, I've just set a letter down in the back. Someone sent me a letter. This is the truth. No one is preaching it but me. And whenever that happens, it's very nice to remember the verse we just read. God does not share truth only privately. Now, I'm qualifying that because sometimes, yeah, maybe he has spoken to you. The way that you will know God has often spoken to you is you need some confirmation. And the Bible says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established. So I think it's even important with prayer. If, if, if guys, if, if the lady in your life is on a totally different page with you on something you are very convicted on, you need to be praying, God, show her like you've shown me. Or ladies, the same thing. Show him like you've shown me. You need that confirmation. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous to know, well, I feel this is true, but has God not spoken to anyone else about this? And we read so many examples through history that when God was showing one person one thing, 
He was showing the very same thing to another person. And it's often just encouraging. I'm not crazy. God is behind this. It's not just my prowess and my digging. God is speaking here. So I think that's very important. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16. And we read another principle. That some of, this, some of the parts of this book are hard to understand, and it's nice that even a biblical writer makes it clear. Talking about Paul, we go up to verse 15. And as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. This is Peter writing about Paul. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also rest, the rest of the scriptures. So we need to know there is a caution. Some of this book is very hard to understand and some people will just take it and start twisting it. Well, I believe this. And what, well, what about this scripture that seems to say the opposite? Well, that wasn't inspired like the others. And people will do this with this varying degrees of inspiration. Well, they were, they were fully pregnant here, but half pregnant here. If, if inspiration is inspiration, then you have to know God was in this as much as he was in this. God was in the Old Testament as much as he was in the New. And if you admit the world we live in, we are, we are cherry-picking Scripture. We throw a lot of it out. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I'll just read that, but that's the principle of what has been revealed is ours. And, and Scripture denotes this idea that, but the secret things still belong to God. So there are some things in this book as we study that unfortunately we may never quite understand. There are some mysteries. Maybe it's not necessarily in this book, but maybe it's a mystery in life. Why can't we figure this thing out? Well, some things are hidden, but everything we're told here can be revealed and understood. Okay, turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55. This is encouraging to me. I told you a while back that uh, one of the hardest things about pastoring is, does this make any difference? When I mow my grass, I know I'm making a difference. I know it. If you vacuum a dirty rug or clean a dirty floor, you know you're making a difference. And I think the greatest crisis of why our children don't want anything to do with our religion is because they really haven't seen it make a difference. You professed this faith for 40, 50 years, mom and dad, and it didn't make you any better. And I am, I am burdened by that idea. And I can tell you for me that as we interact with each other, it is disheartening if we practice this faith and profess this faith and we say we're reading these things and we're praying and it doesn't transform us. It can be disheartening. But the Bible has a promise that's pretty profound 
in Isaiah chapter 55, and we'll start in verse 11. No, let me start in verse 10. It says this, For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there. So that's a good visual. Rain and snow come down, and they don't go back up. But water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. So God is taking credit again for these words. It shall not return to me void. It's, it's a challenge to me or any of us who teach here or teach our families. We can say a lot of things that are outside of this book. And there are no insurance policies on those words. But the insurance of Scripture is God's word, like the snow and the rain, do not come back to him without something in return. It says, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. I think that's a good promise. Parents, you may not know if reading the Bible to your kids is having an effect. God has an insurance policy. Just share the stories. Read the words. It will have an effect. And in our own lives, if you ever have that feeling, it's not just how to study the Bible, but do I even have the motion to get into the Bible? There's a promise there. If these words come into your life, they will have an effect. And I think it's important to remember that. John 17, 17 tells us that the words of Scripture sanctify us. They make us whole. In a world of brokenness, the words of this book somehow supernaturally restore us and make us whole. And we are desperately in need of that in the world we live in today. Turn with me to uh, Luke, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And we're going to go to verse 25. The setting is Jesus has risen. Everyone thinks somebody's stolen the body or it's missing or something. All that he told them they had forgotten. And two individuals, two disciples are walking home. I think this, the story is it's like a seven-mile journey. And they're walking home. And if you've ever walked over rocks and stumps and the dirt, you know, it's kind of a little drudgery-type path. And you're resting here and there, and you keep walking. And we're told in this story that somebody is walking with them. And that somebody is Jesus himself. And I think that's a good reminder for us that as you're going through life, sometimes Jesus himself will show up in your life. Because he's no respecter of persons. He does not say, well, if you have this degree, I will talk to you, and if you don't, I won't. He shows up in people's lives. And as he's listening to their talk, he finally jumps in, in verse 25. And I think this is important as we're understanding, why do we study the Bible? What is it about? Verse 25, then Jesus says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then look what happens in verse 27. Jesus doesn't just say, don't you remember the things I've told you in the last three years? Don't you remember all the things you've heard about me in the last 30 years? But instead, the Bible says, and beginning at Moses, and we're told Moses is the one who wrote Genesis, 
beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think it is extremely important. If you want to study the Bible, this is the story of Jesus. Him interacting in our lives. This week I have to confess a great sin. Um, somehow the emails, the testimonies from the Love and War series were not coming to me. And I'd kind of, you know, remember I used to share them every week? For a while I was like, man, this is so strange. We're still doing all the things we're doing. I, I don't understand why. Did they just stop having an impact? And 200 emails come into my inbox from the last nine months. And I was sick to my stomach because it's people writing, I have this question. I watched this series. This changed my life. I want to make a decision. All these different things. But as was before, so it was in these. The haters were seeking to definitely correct my terrible theology that Michael is Jesus. And I found it fascinating. That is the number one comment in the series. You are a heretic, from Christians, you are a heretic. This is heresy. It should be taken down. Michael is not Jesus. So, so people have a, a disconnect for the idea that before Jesus was called by the Hebrew name Jesus, he could have interacted with humanity as a heavenly being. And Michael, one who is like God, there is a great study you can go through and show that case clearly, but you want to torque some people, tell them Jesus has been in the story from page one. They will lose their minds. And I've got reams of emails to prove it. But for me, it's on that last note, Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus. Let me take you to the beginning of the story. This has been my story from the beginning. And he goes through all the scriptures. So I just, I just want to encourage you. If you ever think the Old Testament is just old laws and boring legalism, it is Jesus in symbols. The New Testament is him revealed. And I think that's important because a lot of Christianity takes the Old Testament, throws it out. We don't need all that. Throw it out. But I would tell you, without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make sense. It doesn't answer the questions that the old is asking. Romans, turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Why were the scriptures written? Why could it not be like what we're hearing is taking place in much of the Muslim world, which is in dreams? In much of the Old Testament, which is in dreams? Dreams are heavy through Scripture. The power of dreams, the role of dreams. Why could God, God not just send a dream to all of us? There's, there's a reason for that. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I was dialoguing uh, in our prayer meeting this week that I've had this burden that somehow we often dwell on the negative. 
and the doom and the gloom. And yet Scripture's purpose is that we might have hope. If we're reading it and we don't leave hopeful, something's wrong because they were written that we would have hope. So I just think it's important as you get into Scripture, the purpose is God wanting to give you hope to make sense of who God is, what this story is about. And too often we don't, I think, remember that. We, we read it as, oh, I'm going to get it. Uh, something I love in my life is going to have to change. Oh, why do I have to read this book? Okay, now let's jump in. How do we study? Okay, how do we study? Based on all those things we just looked at, one of the key things is motive. What is your motive to study the Bible? Sure, we heard all the things it says about itself, all the supposed great things it can do in a life. But if your motive is off, we can be in trouble. So our motive needs to be a desire to know the truth. Thomas Jefferson says this, we are not afraid to follow the truth wherever it may lead. Is that your sincere motive if you open Scripture? Because it may change your very way of life. It may tell you some of the things you love you should hate. Even worse, it should tell you some of the things you hate, you should love. And your motive needs to be, whatever this leads me to believe as true, I need to follow it. And we actually have counsel that if there are things you know to be true and you're not doing them, no more truth or light will be revealed to you from this book because God would just be wasting his time. I've already told you some things that are true. Don't waste my time with asking me to show you more things. Follow the things you know to be right, and I'll show you more things. So I think that's a, that's a delicate thing as we understand the motive of why we get into Scripture. Another thing, remove the distractions. In this world, I don't know about you, but it's almost like I'm addicted to do two or three things at once. I think of music. Well, you can't just listen to music. What am I going to do, just sit there and listen to music? I need to be listening and doing something else. I can't just listen to a sermon or podcast. I need to be listening and doing something else. This must be short-circuiting guys' brains since we can't do two things at once. It's just like schizophrenia, right? So remove the distractions. The Bible is not going to reveal anything to you if you're just surface reading, as if you'd pick up a magazine and say, okay, what do we got here? Whatever that means. That there's something very interesting as if the treasure is below the surface, we talked about in the beginning. And we're looking at the grass saying, so there's treasure here. I don't see treasure. Nothing for me. So I think that's very important that we remove the distractions and know my motive is to find truth and I don't need distractions while I'm digging for that truth. Another one, what is it? And that's what we talked about earlier. The word of God John 1.1 1, 1 says the word was with God and the word was God. That there's no distinction here. And some people think this is heresy. Some Seventh-day Adventists believe that's heresy. I've been dialoguing with them recently. That that concept is heresy. God is here. Scripture is here. And here's the door that that opens. So if you feel he's saying something here, don't worry about this. If we feel God is revealing something, maybe it's outside of Scripture. And you open the doors to who knows what. 
So I think that's very important. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can take this as a letter from God himself. He's not hiding any secrets outside of these pages. I think that's very important. The next thing, prayer. Never should we get into the Bible without praying first. Because it's that idea of removing the distractions, being very sincere, I want to learn something here. There's a prayer God has answered every single time I've ever read the Bible. And sometimes I don't pray it. I don't know why. Lord, show me something new. And I believe you can read the same verse every day and pray that prayer and God will reveal something different every single day. I think that's why this book is mystical, supernatural. There's something about it. How could it be so old and yet tell me about how I'm gonna do something different in my life today through a story that was written thousands of years ago? I think it's very important that we pray before we open the pages of the book and we realize I need the spirit of truth to guide me into all truth, because that's the promise, that the spirit of truth will do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. That's New Living Translation, which means only by praying God, may the spirit of truth guide me into all truth in this moment. Without that, our minds are so clouded with the culture we live in, with the distractions of life, that we are bringing all of the noise into Scripture, and as we read, we can't make sense of it. Prayer is this way in which you get into Scripture, and it's like you're putting on the glasses. Now we can understand the words of this book. But there's a warning on the other side of that. Without prayer... And without a desire to be led into and apply all truth, fascinating, the book Councils of the Church describes that without these, the study of the Bible will lead us to increase in our skepticism and ultimately confuse us. What if that was the way it was taught in school? that it was like a class. And I just wonder, what if parents sent their kids to that school and the Bible was just another thing to check off the grades? Well, at least there's a Bible class, right? But if this is true, how do you guarantee your child who loved the Bible stories as a kid who has saturated them with them as a kid, as soon as they get out of your house, they're confused and they actually don't believe it anymore. You get into it without prayer. You get into it without a desire to be led and to apply all the truth that comes from it. And you will raise skeptic kids. And I think there's a formula there that if the enemy of souls is smart, he will tell people, just study it, prayer or not, sincere or not, and you're creating skeptics. I think it's very dangerous. Another point, make the Bible its own expositor, bringing together all that is said concerning a given subject at different times and under varied circumstances. 
The Bible talks about things here and there, and one writer says it this way and another. If you really want to understand that topic, bring it all together. What is it saying about this, and how do we compile it all, and then we get a case to really understand that topic. Ellen White writes something very interesting, and first I'll ask the question of it. What would be the greatest evil that could ever come to Seventh-day Adventists? You ever wondered that question? I have the answer here, according to her. This is her opinion. She writes it in, in 1888. What would be the greatest evil that could ever come to us as a people? So it, I'm gonna quote now. She says, this is our danger. And this would be the greatest evil that could ever come to us as a people. If we consider our ideas because we have long cherished them as Bible doctrines without error. And if we began measuring everyone by our interpretation of Bible truth. I'll go back to the beginning. This would be the greatest evil that could ever come to us as a people. I'm guilty of that. What I believe is right. Get your Bible, Tomas, and I'll show you. We have these things carved in stone. Get your Bible, I'll show you. And if there was a sledgehammer as I was studying for this sermon, it was that. The greatest evil that could ever come is me just being so stubborn and just saying, look, I've got it figured out. We've got it figured out. You people are wrong. We've got it figured out. And boy, that's a heavy thought for me. Heavy, heavy thought. I'm happy to share these quotes with you. All right, here's another thing. There were a lot of rumblings in the 1800s that made rise to something called the Second Great Awakening. And so as we're trying to figure out how do I study the Bible, there were Bible study principles that were being used by individuals, one of which, William Miller, but we start to find God wasn't just speaking isolated to William Miller, some farmer. He starts to talk to people around the world so they knew God is in this. It's not just smart people, educated people, uneducated people, that God must be doing something. And he began to write down, here are the principles by which I study the Bible. Ellen White later writes in the Review and Herald, these are the same principles that will be used by those who see the second coming of Jesus. So on that note, I'll start to read a few of them. All of Scripture is necessary and can be understood. Every word should have its proper bearing. The Bible, not the pastor, not the teacher, not the parent, not a commentary, not a book, the Bible must explain itself. I just want to boil that down. Without history books, the Bible should explain itself. What is this talking about? Well, somewhere in here, it should help me understand what it's talking about, that the Bible is its own expositor. Another one, to understand doctrine, do you ever wanted to know what is true? This is a dangerous territory because you may find out some things you thought were true are not true. There's some witnesses in here to that. To understand doctrine... Bring all the scriptures together on the subject you wish to know. 
then let every word have its proper influence. And if you can form your theory without a contradiction, you cannot be in error. God has, another one, God has revealed things to come by visions and figures and parables. And in this way, the same things are oftentimes revealed again and again by different visions or in different figures and different parables. If you wish to understand them, you must combine them all into one. Another one, how to know when a word is used figuratively. If it makes good sense as it stands and does no violence to the simple laws of nature, then it must be understood literally, if not figuratively. I think that's a very interesting one because Adventists are big on symbols. And so in one sense, we just take everything, must be symbolic, throw it into the symbolic camp. Symbolic, everything is symbolic. Well, what if that could happen in nature? I mean, you read in the Old Testament, there's some wild things that happen in nature. Maybe it's just saying that literally could happen in nature. Another one. Figures always have a figurative meaning and are used much in prophecy to represent future things, times and events, such as mountains, meaning governments, beasts, meaning kingdoms. Another one. To learn the true meaning of figures. Trace your figurative word through the Bible and where you find it explained Put it on your figure. And if it makes good sense, you need look no further. If not, look again. I'll share all these notes with you. A few other key principles are mentioned. I'm not going to go into all those because there's a few more specifically on how do you understand prophecy. And they're really good points. Then there's a last one that I think is the most important. We kind of touched on this. The reader, William Miller believed, must have faith. We talked about what is faith? It's a simple matter. Faith is confidence in God. You've got to believe God is in this. God is behind this. Those words are there. There's a reason they're there. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he, he that comes to God, if we come to Scripture, says, for he must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I think that's just a beautiful relationship. If you come to this book, you've got to believe this book is real. This book is real and God will reward me with answers by digging into it. And that full quote is in Review and Herald, November 25, 1884, that the same principles William Miller used that led to the Advent movement are the same ones that will be used by those who see the second coming of Jesus. We are in a world today where more and more it's, what do the experts say? Where as soon as you think somebody is an expert, we're told, well, they're not an expert, someone else is an expert. The reason this is the most hated book on earth, the reason this book is banned more than any other book, is this book gives power to the individual. And God says, I will speak to you, not through your pastor, not through your teacher, not through anyone else. I'll speak to you if you come to me and believe I'm a rewarder of those who dig here. And if you seek me in this book, you will find me with a sincere heart, not with an agenda. 
there was a time when Seventh-day Adventists particularly were called, or would call themselves perhaps, the people of the book. That if, boy, if it's said in here, I believe it. I think it's okay to, to indict ourselves a little bit. I'm not sure that's as fair to say anymore. And I think sometimes it's because we have written some things in stone that we say, well, we've been here for a long time. It would be embarrassing if we weren't right on that issue. Yeah, you remember that statement? The greatest evil that could ever come among us is to think that way. So I, I, uh, I want to challenge you as you study the Bible. Do it with an open heart, with a sincere heart, do it daily. It's like food. Food's not going to last you through tomorrow. There's no exact prescription on how much time you have to spend. I think the more you do it, the more you like it. Just say, hey, I'm going I'm to put it on my calendar. Anybody here that uses a calendar, I would encourage you, put Bible study on your calendar. Somehow things become more serious when they get on your calendar. When you're going to meet someone, when you're going to do something, why? It gets on the calendar. Put the Bible on your calendar. I'm going to study this. I'm going to do this every day at this time and between these windows. And I think one of the great sins is like working out. People say, oh, man, I need an hour. And then it's, oh, I don't have an hour, so I'm not going to do any. Start very small. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a new habit. I'm going to get into these words, and I'm going to believe that God is going to do something for me. I've had a personal revival in my own life Digging around this idea of faith and how do you get faith? And if faith is confidence in God, I want more confidence in God. And how do you get that? And the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And what I'm convicted on is confidence in God comes from listening to the stories of the Bible. Reading them, listening to them. So if you don't know where to start, start with the stories. We love stories. And when you start to read those stories, you'll start to see these people are messed up. Why would I have a book of criminals on my shelf? These people are terrible. And the temptation is, well, is this Daniel's story? Is this Joseph's story? Is this Abraham's story? Or is it like Jesus said on the road to Emmaus? This is my story. Look what I did in this rapist's life named King David. Look what I did in this murderer's life named King David. Oh, and at the end of David's life, I call him a man after my own heart. Not because of David, but because of what I did in his life. And what I think the lesson that we get through all these stories is, if God could do that in their life, well, I'm not that bad. Right? That's what we say. I'm not that bad. Maybe he could do something in my own life. And I think that's where we get encouragement, and we will grow in our confidence in God. If that's your desire, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that in the noisy world in which we live, somehow we will carve out a portion of our day in an ideal way, we would be like Daniel, three times a day, morning, noon, and night, just, just to come spend a few minutes with you, to learn of you, to learn how you can bless our lives, to guide our lives. And I want to ask for your blessing on every person here, every person who's listening. Give them a desire to have a relationship with you, a desire to learn from the stories of this book. And somehow that through that, you will draw us closer to you. And our faith, our confidence in you will increase. We 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.